Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 47 to 58. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's the scripture reading for you today. No cannibalism in our faith. Um, Pray with me, will you? Gracious God, it is so good to gather together with you and your people. Thank you for your word, your gift to us. We would only be guessing at who you are if you hadn't revealed yourself to us. And so thank you for that gift. I pray that you um, open it up to us and that we might respond to you, not just this morning right now, but always. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be with you. I love that we're doing this sermon series through our liturgy of why we do what we do and how it forms us as disciples, as followers of Jesus. Um, There's there's a lot of misunderstanding or just lack of understanding about a lot of what we do as church um, because we tend to enter into things midstream. And so things just don't get explained to us. For instance, um, in some Christian traditions, when you walk into the church building, there's these little dishes with water. Uh, holy water at, at, um, at the entrance. And so you dip your finger in there and you put it on your head and your heart and your shoulders in the sign of a cross. And unfortunately for too long, that was not explained. And um, so people started thinking it was just a good way to get rid of vampires and werewolves. <laughs> and the same is true of our topic today of communion. Um, the Latin phrase Hocus corpus meum, uh, which means this is my body, became hocus pocus. 
That's where that came from. Um, because that's the part of the Catholic Mass where this bread magically becomes the body of Jesus. And a friend of mine tells a story kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum about soon after she became a Christian, um, late in high school, um, in her Canadian Baptist church, they would ha have communion in the pews. They wouldn't come forward like us. They'd be in the pews and they'd pass around this metal tray that had a bunch of glass shot glasses of juice <laughs> in them. And uh, everybody would take their glass and hold it, and then they would all drink it together. And then in the back of their pews were these little wooden racks that you would put your glasses in afterwards. We have, we have ones in there as well. But, um, and th there would be this big rattling sound as people put them in there. And she thought that that was actually part of this weird thing that they were doing. And so she would rattle her cup <laughs> inside the little glass, shot glass holder. It was actually years before she figured out that was not a thing. Um, <laughs> so things need to be explained. Um, not only do we avoid silly errors, but we also come to understand how these elements of our liturgy, of these um, parts of our worship, um, not only take us deeper into worship, but form us in our discipleship as we follow Jesus. And I hope um, I do an adequate job of doing that for us with communion today. So are you hungry? Anybody thirsty today? Because this is a meal that we're talking about. Since this is my topic, I'll probably overstate this, but I think communion is actually the most important element of worship that we do every Sunday. Communion is actually the goal of everything that God is doing in the world and in us. Communion is an act of union with God and an act of union with the people of God that brings heaven and earth and humanity together. So let me do a quick overview of the Bible. God creates everything, and it's good. Everything except one thing. In chapter two we read, it is not good for the man to be alone. So God par parades every creature in front of the man, and they all get a name, but none of them is a good counterpart. It's only then that God fashions the woman from the man and as much as I love my dog, and I love my dog very much, he is no match for me like my wife Charlene is. All of this is done in Genesis 2 to highlight the relational nature of humanity as created in the image of God who is Trinity, who is in himself a community. We are not made to be isolated. Isolation is bad, and if COVID taught us anything, it taught us that. Then we get a series of stories from Genesis 3 to 11, which paint a composite picture of alienation. We become alienated from God. Husband and wife become alienated. Siblings become alienated. Men and women become alienated. Humans and creation become alienated. Parents and children become alienated and nation and nation become alienated. Genesis 3 to 11 gives us this whole um, 
spectrum of the relationships that become alienated when, when we fall. Alienation is bad. It's only then that we get to Genesis 12 and the call of Abram and Sarah, through whom God is going to work to repair this world of isolation and alienation. The reconciliation of all things, which we talk about a lot here for good reason at Antioch, has communion as its goal. We reconcile with God in order to have communion with God. We seek reconciliation of justice and restored relationships with our neighbors and creation in order to have communion with them, not just because we like to put the puzzle pieces back together again. In this little meal, we engage in a kind of holy play, enacting in miniature the goal of all of history, this big thing that God has been working on the entire time this big thing that God will one day finally and fully bring together. Anybody excited about this? All right. Come on now. This is it. I mean, this, this is everything. This, is, this brings all of who we are and what we do together as Christians in one act. We get to see in miniature what it is that we are here for. Okay, quick commercial break. We'll be showing this movie tonight in this room at 8.30, Babette's Feast. 6.30. Thank you. What, what did I say? Okay, yeah, 6.30, yes. Uh, it takes Holy Communion and extends it into the life of a broken community, bringing this suspicious group of people together in true communion after worshiping poorly together. In a way, it reminds us that the communion meal ought to lead to other meals during the rest of the week. So this meal that we're gonna share together later should lead to other meals in the rest of the week. We ought to experience a taste of our communion with God and with one another during our worship gathering and say, I want more of that. That's just, there's too many people here in Antioch that I don't know, let's have meals together afterward. Um, the church that my wife Charlene and I met at um, when we were in graduate school actually moved buildings to another building. And while they were there, they grew and they realized they needed to have other ways of connecting. And so that they started taking over a pizza parlor. Um, and between 50 and 70 people would show up after church at this pizza parlor on Sundays, and um, they were generous and kind and cleaned up after themselves, and, and soon the staff at the pizza parlor started becoming followers of Jesus as well. What if we started inviting one another, and especially others we don't know well or don't know at all, and started filling up the local restaurants with joyful, generous Antiochers, and started going deeper into our communion with one another. Just an idea, take it for what it's worth. So what is communion? What is this weird thing that we stop our service and do every Sunday? 
My old uh, theology professor, J.I. Packer, referred to baptism and communion as a wash and a meal. And it's generally best to wash up before you eat, but he said, you know, if you're super hungry, just eat, that's fine. So what kind of meal is, that? is this? Um, to answer that question, first another question. Why did Daniel and his friends refuse to eat the food from the Babylonian king's table in Daniel chapter one? Yes, it's partly because it wasn't kosher food, but more than that, to eat meat at someone's table in the ancient Near East was to suggest that you were in agreement with them. Daniel wanted to avoid entering into a covenant relationship with the Babylonian king. So back then, there were a bunch of different kinds of covenants. Um, but in a covenant meal, in this specific one, meat and wine were always served. If you kept covenant with the great king, that meat and that wine uh, represented the wealth that you would enjoy as his vassal. But if you were to break covenant with the great king, at whose table you're eating, that meat and that wine would become your own flesh and your own blood in your own mouth. You would be eating your death in, in symbol. So think about this. Even though we are the covenant breakers when it comes to the greatest of great kings, our Lord, Jesus takes our place as the covenant breaker telling us that it isn't our flesh or our blood that we eat and drink, but it's his body and his blood. As the great theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, put it, Jesus is God for man and man for God. Jesus sits on both sides of the covenant table. He fulfills the obligation of death, the consequence in his own body and blood, and then establishes this new covenant. Since it's a covenant meal, and since this covenant relationship is open to all people, this table is open to all people. But since it's a covenant meal, to eat and drink of it without taking part in the covenant um, kind of treats the king and the meal a little bit poorly. So as a friend of mine uh, said every Sunday before offering uh, the gift of communion, he would say, if you don't yet follow Jesus, to eat this meal would be to say more about yourself than is currently true. But if you were to say, yes, I do want to follow Jesus, I do want to enter into this covenant relationship, by all means, eat and drink. So let's be honest. These tiny cubes of gluten-free bread dipped into a cup of non-alcoholic wine isn't much of a meal. Agreed? We avoid gluten and alcohol out of hospitality to those in our community for whom those would be harmful. So that's why we do that. But why such small portions? From 1 Corinthians 11, which is really the only place we get uh, much said about, about communion in the New Testament, we have the sense that, that the early church had full-on meals. 
as part of their experience of, of communion. We only know this, though, because they did it poorly. Uh, Paul wouldn't have written 1 Corinthians 11 if they hadn't done communion badly. So thank you, Corinthians, for doing it poorly. So when we read that, we, we discover that some people were getting drunk because they didn't do a non-alcoholic grape juice. And not, only, not everybody was invited to the meal. So it became something of an exclusive event for probably the richer um, ones, while the slaves um, who were Christians arrived later after they did their duties for um, their master's households. So Paul does... Um, this a masterful thing playing on the term body, a, a word that's used throughout 1 Corinthians. Just read 1 Corinthians sometime and just look for all of the body imagery. Um, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, he talks about earlier, and later on, he talks about the church as a body. So here's 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. So hear that. Without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So if the church is the body of Christ... And if there's one loaf of bread in communion, which is also the body of Christ, when we divide the churchly body of Christ, when we celebrate communion with the sacramental body of Christ, we, we mess the whole thing up. This is the reason why we're supposed to pause and reflect, to examine before we eat and drink from the Lord's table. Are we mocking the body of Christ by eating the meal while tearing apart the relational body of Christ. Our reflection, that examined part, isn't upon some moral checklist. I mean, we're all sinners. That We come to this table as forgiven sinners. It's to check our relationships. Remember our mission. We are joining God in his reconciliation of all things. Alienation is bad. Communion is our goal. So how can we eat and drink communion while refusing to be reconciled, refusing to end reconciliation with others? Now, I realize it's not always up to us. As Romans 12 says, you know, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. And sometimes it doesn't depend on us because others will not be reconciled with us. That we still come and we offer that to, to our Lord and we say, God, um, I want this to be, I want to be one with others, but at this point, I don't see a way forward. Um, and that's okay. So back to our portion size. Why so small? This meal is an appetizer. It is the beginning of the great feast, the fullness of which will be hosted by Jesus himself when his kingdom comes in its fullness. Before Jesus came, um, many Jews were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And one, one sign that they were looking forward to to signal the coming of the Messiah was the great messianic banquet. This, the Messiah would host this banquet. 
Now, if you look through the Gospels, Jesus eats lots of meals with people. And what his contemporaries didn't realize was that those were the beginning of the, of the banquet. I mean, the feeding of the 5,000 is the messianic banquet that they were looking forward to. But so too was Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. And his contemporaries went, what in the world is this? That they thought that that was something that um, was a sign that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but this was actually the beginning of what Jesus was doing. This meal, um, he offered himself, he started the banquet, which will finally come to its fullness in the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we read about in Revelation 19. But because that kingdom hasn't yet come in its fullness, we don't eat and drink fully. This appetizer is to whet our appetites, to make us hungrier, to increase our yearning for what has already begun but is not yet fully here. This is a meal that calls for more. This is the crackers and cheese, the charcuterie thing, whatever you call that. Um, While the turkey is in the oven and the pie and the stuffing and all that other good stuff that is making your mouths water right now and your stomachs grumble. By the way, another term uh, used for communion is Eucharist, which is simply just an untranslated Greek word, which means Thanksgiving. So we are not to eat and drink the Eucharist and say, that was lovely, I'm full now. No, this, is, this cries out for more. And as such, it taps into Jesus' promise that the more is on its way. The great Thanksgiving meal is in the oven. We can smell it. We know it's good. We know it's for us. We just have to wait a bit longer. And the waiting and longing is essential to our discipleship. When we lose that sense of waiting and longing, we lose hope as disciples, which is why we keep coming back to this table again and again and again. So why do we come forward? Many churches pass trays of the shot glasses in the pews, but even more come forward. Both are good. I like coming forward because Jesus comes to us and offers himself to us, and then we come to him. Jesus does all of the work, creation, incarnation, salvation, but he asks us then to come to him. So we respond. We get up, we come forward, we respond. Why do we dip? Um, Dipping bread into the cup is called intinction, not distinction, but intinction. And the goal with intinction is to have a common loaf and a common cup, the sense of oneness that, um, that we can get by having the common thing while at the same time not um, sharing the same cup and sharing spit and germs and all that stuff. Um, Why do we do it weekly? Uh, When I became a pastor, the church that um, 
I was pastoring, only celebrated communion on the first Sunday of the month. And I believe Antioch in the past only uh, had communion quarterly in the evening, uh, which was harder to get to. Um, and I, I know there's a lot of churches real, that realize there's a trade-off. I mean, we, if we're gonna do communion, then we're not gonna sing as many songs, and so some prefer to sing more songs, and so they, they don't wanna do that. But it, it took a while for me to convince uh, my congregation to switch to weekly. Uh, and the objection was, you know, doing it more frequently would be too much of a good thing. Um, monthly is so much better than weekly, to which I said, like sex? <laughs> which was usually the end of the conversation. <clears throat> and like making love, once they experienced it more often, they didn't want to go back. Um, <clears throat> and I, I don't think I'm being crass by comparing communion to making love. Both are about union more than the physical sensation, something our culture could take a lesson from. But even weekly isn't enough for many Christians. Mother Teresa and her community of nuns serving the poorest of poor in Calcutta would get up at 4 a.m. with mass. They needed to be nourished with the very body and blood of Jesus if they were going to do the work ahead of them with joy. You see, none of us has it in us to do the work of God in the world. The reconciliation of all things is not something that you and I can do. We don't have it. We're like voters who fill in a few bubbles on a piece of paper and feel like we've done something significant. The only way we can do something significant in the world is if we are nourished by the body and blood of Christ, the very life of Christ himself. The only way that we can endure being broken and poured out for the sake of the world is if we are fed by Jesus, who is broken and poured out for us. So here's part of our scripture reading again from, from John 6, uh, 53 to 56. And just a little aside, John spends an entire third of his gospel in one evening, at one table, and one meal, and one conversation, what we call uh, the Last Supper. And yet, in John's Gospel, communion is not referred to in that entire time. That's because it, John has referred to it back here in John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. You can see why Catholics emphasize this passage while we Protestants tend to draw our communion liturgy from 1 Corinthians 11, completely avoiding any cannibalistic sounding language. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, carves out, carves, that was not probably the best word, out a unique approach to communion. Um, so Catholics and Orthodox believe that 
the bread and the wine are transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus and only appear to be bread and wine on the surface. On the other end of the spectrum, um, following Ulrich Zwingli, uh, many Protestants say that the elements are only, only symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus. Lutherans use the, ter the term consubstantiation and say that Jesus is in, with, and under um, the elements, but nobody really understands what that means. <laughs> My apologies to any Lutherans. Um, Calvin, and not whistling Calvin, um, <laughs> wrote about, that was, I have never had seen a whistling solo before. That was really cool. Um, John Calvin, not Calvin Van Halen, um, wrote about what he called real presence. He said that the, these symbols aren't only symbolic because symbols point to realities. At the same time, he says, so there's nothing magic going on here. The bread remains bread and the wine remains wine. But the reality is that the real presence of Jesus is with them. Jesus is truly and uniquely present in the bread we eat and the cup we drink. Why? Because we are deeply and spiritually hungry for him. Our souls crave him and we are starved and parched without him. Okay, let me sew all of this together. We're hungry, so we eat. We're thirsty, so we drink. And the only meal that satisfies is not a Snickers bar. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Personally, we are starving without him. Missionally, we are nourished by him if we're going to participate in God's reconciliation of all things. And we are isolated and alienated, so we need to come together at this table. We need to experience the taste of unity with God and with one another so that it can spill over into the rest of our lives. We need to be reminded over and over and over again that our lives are all about relationship, regardless of what anybody else tells us. We need this meal together because we eat too many meals by ourselves in isolation. We need this meal as one church made up of all sorts of different people that our culture tells us shouldn't get along. So pray with me. Jesus, make us one. Let this weekly act of communion lead us into lives of communion. Communion with you. Communion with one another. And help us thereby to, to participate in the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May this appetizer create an appetite within us, an insatiable longing for you, for your kingdom, for the day when the reconciliation of all things will be fully and finally complete and we will feast with you and be satisfied. Amen.